Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Rich, rich, rich Pete Buttigieg. That is a very challenging sentence to say out loud. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today, as usual, by Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, and we have been thinking about billionaires. We've got billionaires on the mind, as Michael Bloomberg has been indicating that he wants to hop into the 2020 Democratic presidential field. Uh, a, a much poorer billionaire, Tom Steyer, has already done this. Um, and Obviously, a, a quote-unquote billionaire, Donald Trump, is currently in the White House. In the White House, and it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting time. Um, you know, Bloomberg. I mean, you can say in Bloomberg's defense, he's not just a billionaire. He was also <laughs> the mayor of New York City. Right. Um, so you know, it, it's not, in fact, the second mayor of New York City to take a stab at running for president in 2020. But you know, it's to me frustrating to see people who have a lot of money and are interested in spending that money on political causes to decide that the best way to do that is to spend the money on themselves. Um, There's very little indication that the voters are looking for extra options in this field. To the extent that they are, it's not that they need like other septuagenarians, right? Like, yes. you know, I mean, because you look at you look at Joe Biden and, you know, some people just disagree with, with his politics. They're more left wing. But like, that's not Michael Bloomberg. And then some people who sympathize more with his politics are like, oh, this guy's kind of up there in years. But Bloomberg's the same age as he is, has none of the like even notional like Pennsylvania gritty working class cred of a Joe Biden. And it's like you just don't get it. And then it makes me to, – to people who are like diehard leftists, it's almost like this is amazing because they now get to complain about Michael Bloomberg a lot. But like I kind of like Michael Bloomberg. I think he, you know, is a mixed bag as mayor, but like he did some good things there. I think his ideas in national politics are like mostly good. But like – don't, like, throw money down the toilet. Right. I mean, I think that there's—it's, like, worth noting that it's not like absolutely nobody is calling for more Democrats to jump into this race. It's just that there's no indication that Democratic voters are really hankering right. for new candidates, much less any particular kind of new candidate. But Democratic elites appear to be in a state of panic. Like, there's noise about Eric Holder, like— questioning whether he should jump in. Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, is apparently considering whether it's time for him to jump in. And during what appears to be an open enrollment phase for new Democratic candidates, like it makes a little bit more sense that somebody like Bloomberg, who could be self-funding and wouldn't 
you know, in in kind of early stages and wouldn't require a big investment of infrastructure that could go elsewhere in order to set up. Like, okay, maybe you can understand the point of that. But there definitely is the question of, like, what kind of candidate would Bloomberg represent in this race? Not just as he a septuagenarian, but like, you know, Matt, the the politics that he's been associated with are a particularly paternalistic strain of liberalism, right? He is the candidate who would probably with the, you know, as as much as Beto O'Rourke appears to have been chased out of the race or like the narrative is that he was chased out of the race because he took too harsh a stance on gun control. Like Bloomberg has put a lot of money into anti-gun proliferation stuff. And of course, as, as mayor of New York, uh, made a big deal out of stop and frisk for the pur- purposes ostensibly of getting guns off the streets. He is associated with that kind of like quality of life first, public safety first, rather than kind of reducing mass incarceration-focused criminal justice policies. He was a big proponent of things like soda taxes mm-hmm. and other stuff that, you know, isn't necessarily what Democrats think of when they think of centrist candidates. But he's also, of course, associated with, as a businessman and a billionaire, the kind of anti-anti-Wall Street politics that I think a lot of Democratic elites are hoping to see, even if Democratic voters may not be. The concern appears to be that if Joe Biden isn't a strong candidate, you don't have anyone representing the idea that it may not be a terrible thing to make a lot of money. And so that appears to be the role that he's filling. It's just, is that the role that his billions need to be filling right now? So here's the thing. I really don't think we can overstate how much Democratic voters are not calling for this. Gallup (laughs) Gallup polling shows that Democrats are happy with as happy with the field of candidates as they've been, or more so since 1992. This is the happiest Democratic voters have been with a slate of candidates in more than 25 years. And yet I think that you do see this concern from quote-unquote Democratic higher-ups or elites that, especially if your objective is to beat Donald Trump, there seems to be a couple of conceits here. And we can get more into the billionaires thing in a little bit because I'm interested in what role that is playing and our idea of what a billionaire really is. But we have now had, you know, if we include the involvement of Rudy Giuliani in our lives, we have now had three New York City mayors believe firmly that they can be president of the United States. And, you know, this is a historical tradition. This is something that has gone on. The idea that New York, New York City specifically, is somehow representative of the challenges of running the country. And if you can run New York City, you can run the country. The issue being, that is not true. That is not at all true. That has perhaps never been true. It's no South Bend, right? It's no South Bend, and it's not Youngstown. It's also not Chicago or Los Angeles, as anyone who's ever read the New York Times food section can tell you. But I think that there seems to be this idea that running New York, and especially because there's this idea that somehow people outside of New York don't know what happens inside of New York, which I thought was one of the funniest parts of Bill de Blasio's tenure, which which was that people really didn't like him inside the city of New York. We're not fans. They may have voted for him, but we're not like super big fans of him. And we're not like, hey, everybody back home in Illinois. Hey, all of my friends in Montana, you should definitely vote for this guy. But somehow both de Blasio and now Bloomberg seem to think that like no one knows what we did here. No one knows about the soda tax. No one knows about stop and frisk. No one knows about all these things we did. All anyone sees is New York City mayor and we're all like cast members from Annie or something. Like, I think that there's really something to be said about how this seems to 
you know, there are a couple of conceits here. One, that Democratic voters want someone more like Joe Biden or like Rich Pete Buttigieg, or that Democratic voters want someone who is a big city mayor because being a big city mayor proves something. Except that, you know, we've had, we have other candidates who have been mayors of other cities, um, and that doesn't seem to be the appeal that Democrats are looking for. Democratic voters have said throughout this campaign that they're concerned about wealth inequality, and they're very concerned about the role that money plays in our politics. And the response from Michael Bloomberg is, hey, yes, I just donated roughly $2.4 million to help turn Virginia blue, but if you like that so much, why don't I just throw myself into the race? Because what you really wanted was a rich billionaire who is like Trump, but nice and liberal. I don't know that the miscalculation is that Democratic voters are calling for a Mike Bloomberg. I think that this is actually something interesting insofar as it shows, you know, Bloomberg is, I think, a microcosm of a certain slice of the super rich who consider themselves to be fairly socially progressive in their politics, who do not like Donald Trump. Bloomberg, obviously, is a former Republican, ran for New York mayor initially as a Republican, then became an independent, is now firmly identified as a Democrat, identifies himself with Democratic causes, like helped spend money to turn Virginia blue. He's now in, at least to some extent, the mainstream of the party infrastructure. At the same time, though, the party writ large has moved away from some of the things that he was willing to, you know, compromise on or did not consider to be, like, key priorities for him as mayor. It's moved left on things like criminal justice, and it's skeptical of the you know, it, it is more skeptical of the accumulation of capital than I think a Bloom, than Bloomberg might want. But the theory of the case appears to be here that it is extremely important that someone beat Donald Trump and that the people who the Democratic Party currently or the Democratic primary voters are currently supporting may not be equipped to beat Donald Trump, that there is some degree to which the mainstream of America is out of sync with Democratic primary voters and that the way in which they are out of sync is that the American mainstream thinks that capitalism is A-OK. Well, no, no, but here, I, I think you, you need to go through, like, the, the whole list of sure, worries, sure, sure. right? So, like, this is the the worrier's viewpoint, right, is that on the one hand, there are a bunch of voters who are gravitating toward Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, right? And then the concern is that they are too left-wing, right, maybe too left-wing wing to beat Trump, or maybe just too left wing on the merits, right? Then you have as the alternative to them, and like in first place, to be clear, in the polls, Joe Biden, very popular among Democrats, doing really well. He keeps being robust to naysayers about his campaign. Uh, but one difficulty here is that there's a strong correlation between education levels and attention to politics, right? So a lot of people who have followed the campaign closely look at Joe Biden's actual performance, and it seems weak to them, right? Not just Biden haters, not just ideological left-wingers, but like people who would like to see a mainstream Democrat beat Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, see him looking tired at the end of debates, see him being unimpressive in sort of Q&A sessions with voters, see him doing events at a slower pace than the other candidates out there. And they are concerned about this. 
This doesn't hurt Biden with the electorate because he has this very working class base, which, among other things, doesn't pay that close attention to the campaign, right? So the concern among people who have concerns is that there's a whistling past the graveyard happening here, that the idea of Joe Biden is very popular with working class Democrats, but that the reality of Joe Biden is going to underwhelm either after he loses Iowa and potentially loses New Hampshire, which are not great states for him, that there's then going to be an elevated Biden scrutiny cycle, at which point he will collapse in favor of Warren. That's one concern. The other is that he may be able to sort of sleepwalk his way through the primary and then will face a very tough general election campaign against Trump, in which he's not going to be sort of up to the tempo, right? Then the next fallback, the candidate who has done the best with like the donors and bundlers is Pete Buttigieg, right, who is an appealing character in a lot of ways. But to people who, like, know the game, the fact that he seems really unpopular with African-American voters makes it appear impossible. Because black voters are usually the constituency that white moderates need in order to win, right? And Buttigieg seems like a poor choice to execute that goal. And the concern, of course, is not that black voters would, would turn out to vote for Donald Trump against Pete Buttigieg. The concern is that if you look at the relative performance of Barack Obama in 2008-2012 and Hillary Clinton in 2016, the relative lack of enthusiasm of black voters in, like, Rust Belt states was a big problem. But also that in the primary, Buttigieg just can't beat Sanders and Warren if he displaces Biden. So then you say, okay, we need need somebody else, right? And then you might say, ah, like Cory Booker, right? That seems like a candidate who could appeal to both donors and African-American voters. But Booker positioned himself, like, way to the left at the start of the campaign. Harris already had her moment in the sun and kind of like flamed out. So I think that's both the case for like Eric Holder and Deval Patrick is that they could be successors to the Obama, you know, coalition inside the the primaries. But then the problem is, is like, does Mike Bloomberg answer this dilemma? Right. And it seems like he doesn't. That Like the Bloomberg situation, and now I'm sure having been mayor of New York City for 12 years, Michael Bloomberg thinks the mayor of South Bend, Indiana is a joke. Right? Like, just like on the merits. But in terms of political positioning, it's the exact same thing, right? Which is that, like, how are you going to have a moderate who has no support with African Americans? Right. And I think that if Mike Bloomberg could like go back in time and change his politics in New York City, he like might well have done that. There was some very weird stuff going on in Bloomberg's early years in New York where He depended on a political coalition between sort of moderate white Democrats and, like, actual honest-to-God Republicans, right? That, like, if you look at the parts of New York City that Trump won, those were overwhelming Bloomberg precincts. And that was because of a very Trump-esque, like, pro-police identity politics thing that Bloomberg was doing that's not really reflective of Bloomberg's, like, current political priorities at all, but is, like, deeply his legacy in New York City and his image in the black community. And there's, like, no way to undo that. Mm -hmm. So you're not – 
the the Deval Patrick thing seems kind of loopy, but it at least does like answer the question. Whereas Bloomberg does nothing, right? And what you could do constructively with your money is either like put all that money behind Joe Biden to make his campaign be better, or put all that money behind like Amy Klobuchar or Steve Bullock, like candidates who sort of look good on paper, but they're flailing. But like with a billion dollars in the bank, like anybody's name recognition would go up. Right. And here's where the Tom Steyer comparison is relevant, right? Because Steyer, who was a big deal in Democratic Party donor circles before this cycle, has spent the last year and change first spending gajillions of bucks on TV ads urging Democrats to impeach Donald Trump, which, you know, has happened, but not because Tom Steyer bought bought a bunch of TV ads, and then decided to, like, use that to become a campaign for the presidency where impeachment was a very strong marker of his early candidacy. And that, again, has happened, but not in a way that makes Tom Steyer look like, you know, he pushed for it. And the the opportunity cost, Steyer is pouring so much money into his own campaign that there really does, especially among Democrats who are concerned about party building in a, you know, post-Barack Obama Democratic Party where state and local Democratic parties feel a little bit hollowed out and Republicans have control of so many state legislatures, the concern that if you really are dug in on the future of the Democratic Party as an entity, if you see the party as an entity as the way to stop Trump and Trumpist politics rather than as the only, you know, the only adults in the room, but people who still have to be led in a particular direction, then you need to be investing in the Democratic Party per se and not necessarily in your own personality. But it appears that both Steyer and Bloomberg feel that they as individuals, as politicians and potential politicians, have something unique to contribute that simply their money would not. Right. And it seems to be, you know, going back to, Dara, your point about the Obama years, one of the challenges the Democratic Party has faced is that Obama put much of his fundraising mechanism outside of the Democratic Party through Organizing for America. And so, you know, one of the big points that's been made repeatedly is that while the Republican National Committee and the Trump campaign have billions of dollars to spend, the Democratic Party does not. That does not mean that the Democrats do not have money is just not within the Democratic Party or within Democratic Party coffers. And what gets me, and I just keep thinking about, is, you know, one, this idea, and I think it goes back to Trump's original campaign in some senses, is that it seems to me that both Steyer and Bloomberg are buying into the idea that it takes a billionaire businessman, and with Trump, let's put billionaire in quotes, so we don't because we don't actually know if he was one or is one, you know, it takes a billionaire businessman to challenge a billionaire businessman because we live in Gotham now. And so, you know, this idea that that is what's needed and that the Tom Steyer constituency, which I do not know what it is, and the Bloomberg constituency, which again appears to be people on Morning Joe, is that you, know, you will need someone with money to challenge someone else with money. And you can just kind of project upon these entities with money, whatever you want. Like Bloomberg will say whatever he needs to say, kind of in the idea that you know, Trump eventually in office basically became kind of like whatever Mitch McConnell needed him to do, plus immigration restrictionism, plus crazy tweets, plus racism. 
that Bloomberg will just be like, OK, he will be this person with money. He can self-fund, quote, unquote, his own campaign, and he will basically do whatever we need him to do. He will be kind of the the fo- the perfect foil to Trump based in an idea of Trump that I don't think is at all accurate. The idea of this I alone can fix it candidate that didn't turn out to be that at all. And it just is like. It seems to be reaching for a constituency that doesn't exist except for, like, six very nervous Democratic Party staffers. Well, let's let's take a break here, though, because I do think that, like, a culture war has broken out, like, inside Democratic circles about the idea of billionaires. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. I want to start out very quickly with our discussion of billionaires, because I did a, I did a little research okay. on how many billionaires there are in the United States. There are 607 billionaires in the United States. There were 586 last year. There were 404 in 2010. 40% live in New York and California. And Kylie Jenner is a billionaire, which means that in about 15 years, we could be looking at the Kylie Jenner presidency. So I think that is worth considering. But I think that the idea of what a billionaire means, and moreover, why we should listen to billionaires on the issues, when I think that there have been a couple of people pointed out, like we've seen a lot of um, our colleague Emily Stewart has been doing a lot of work on how billionaires feel about Elizabeth Warren, for example. But we have not heard so much from people who are living on food stamps or the working poor. And we're not getting like the same kind of ethnographies or (laughs) crying photographs that we're now getting of billionaires who are sad about wealth taxes. I think the other point when we're talking about billionaires as a class to note, as uh, Dylan Matthews wrote, you know, in a very like clearly written piece last week, is that most billionaires who are active in American politics are very active and very quiet and donate a lot of money to Republicans, right? When we're talking about billionaires who are using kind of their public platform to speak instead of just funneling money toward their preferred party, we're not talking about a very representative slice of the pie because most of the kind of ultra-rich in America are spending their money trying to make sure that candidates who oppose high taxation, which is to say Republicans, are getting elected to things. Right. But this is where it's like things have gotten interesting, right? Because it's like time was you had a certain number of very rich people in the United States. And most of them seemed not that engaged with civic life and maybe gave a lot of money to right-wing economic causes. And people on the right would 
be grateful to right. those people who help finance their institutions. And people on the left would complain about them in a sort of uncomplicated way that, you know, liberals complain about the Koch brothers um, or, or the Scaifes or whomever else. But then there was a different group of people, right, of which, you know, Bill Gates is both the richest and in some ways the most emblematic, but who call them like high-minded rich people, right, who had a public image as people who cared about a lot of stuff and would speak about topics, donate to causes that were ostensibly um, and in fact actually in many cases not self-interested, you know, global public health, that kind of thing. And because of Gates's stature in the technology industry, I think a lot of later rich tech people sort of followed in those footsteps. None of them have become as rich as Bill Gates except for Jeff Bezos, and none of them have done as much as Gates to like genuinely put their money where their mouth is in terms of, of high-minded stuff. But, you know, this was definitely a trend, right? And the conventional thing for a long time was to praise those people, right? Like the Gates Foundation has done a lot of good work on public health in Africa. And to also say these are interesting people to listen to. They are smart, worldly individuals. Uh, right. They're they spending not only their money but their – time looking into the best ways to help people, and right. therefore their expertise is valued. And then you had the two particular individuals, Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg, who both became increasingly interested in the climate change issue over time, and they became the two leading donors to Democratic Party campaigns, right? And then there has been a backlash to that particular set of billionaires, which a little bit confusingly adopts a rhetorical stance of opposition to all billionaires. But the point of that rhetoric is to try to say that, like, even the good billionaires are bad, right? And that's sort of the point of Anand Giridas's book called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Saving the World. It's become a talking point associated with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's something that um, Bernie Sanders has embraced explicitly. Elizabeth Warren, with her wealth tax, to an extent, like, is walking a middle ground here. But it's clear that the billionaires themselves see Warren as part of this backlash against them, as part of a worldview which is saying not that, like, we want you to pay somewhat higher taxes as part of an overall progressive tax scheme, but that, like, we think you are bad people. In no moral economy could you have accumulated the wealth that you have, which goes against very strongly not only, obviously, what people who are likely to go into business prize in themselves, but also what the received wisdom of, like, the American dream, you know, the kind of the Cold War idea that a lot of what makes America great is that you can— turn yourself into a very rich and powerful person by virtue of your hard work. But not just that, right? But like part of the new critique of billionaires is that the stuff that billionaires would like to be applauded for, like giving money to charity and stuff like that, is in fact part of the problem, right? That this is an undemocratic steering of resources, that it's a mask for uh, billionaires' true power, that, you know, the, that some things that are ostensibly just about helping people are really about manipulating the political process. And, like, ground zero for this, I actually think, was when Mark Zuckerberg decided that he wanted to put a lot of money into a Newark education reform when Cory Booker was mayor. And I think it's pretty clear that, like, Zuckerberg 
thought this was something that would just get everybody to say what a good person Mark Zuckerberg was. But in fact, it turned out to be like a fraught, contested political topic that, you know, like brought him into a like hornet's nest of like people disagreeing about politics. And, you know, it exemplifies the fact that it's really not possible to just like do good things without being intervening in the political process. And, you know, whether you think those criticisms, like it seems to me that what Zuckerberg was trying to do in Newark was actually unobjectionable, but like people object to everything that touches on the public interest. And it right. is and true. And also you that, don't like, get, you know, you don't get credit for doing things without forethought and then relying on good intentions, just right. as a general rule. Well, and, and I mean, you know, a number of things, right? Like, there's very little actual personal financial sacrifice involved in these charitable contributions, right? Even though the, the money is large, it's, like, not at all the same as a person actually restraining their personal consumption for the sake of others, right? It's just, like, a huge bag of funny money. And it is true that, like, the billionaires who are doing this stuff, I think the critics, frankly, go over the top with this. But, like, they are amassing a kind of political and cultural capital that is then really exemplified by Steyer and then Bloomberg, like, sort of turning the page from, I want to help you guys win elections, to actually, I should be president. The most recent incident to spark this, even before Michael Bloomberg jumped into the race, was a public appearance that Bill Gates had a couple of weeks ago where a an unfortunately edited clip appeared to make it seem that he was opposed to Elizabeth Warren because he didn't want to be taxed more. The actual clip, he makes it clear that he's joking. It appears very obvious that Bill Gates, whose foundation does a lot of work with you know, various NGOs in the American government abroad, might not want to say who he's voting for in general, which, you know, in the in the leftist critique is itself a damning thing because it indicates that he has a class interest that's beyond just kind of what is obvious to the left, that Donald Trump must be stopped at all costs. But the other kind of reason that that really sparked it was the idea that even Bill Gates, the good billionaire, would bulk so much at the prospect of a wealth tax that he would be willing to support Donald Trump, who so obviously goes against many of the things that Bill Gates appears to believe are good in society. Which raises interesting questions of, A, the critique of what Bill Gates says he would do or who he says he would vote for gives into the idea that Bill Gates is a uniquely powerful voice. That, you know, regardless of what Bill Gates is spending his money on, the fact that he personally might not vote for Elizabeth Warren makes him morally suspect, which is a very interesting idea of power from a left critique that tries to say that billionaires aren't that special. But it does also raise the question of, is it better for Bill Gates to be determining how he spends his money than for that money to be confiscated in taxation and redirected? Is it conversely better because less tainted by politics for Bill Gates to be determining what the optimal way to spend his money is? What I'm get, I mean, in addition to being an obvious plug for Future Perfect, both the podcast and the content vertical at Vox.com, which is really deeply engaged with a lot of these questions, I think that this is an, a demonstration that the idea that maximal input and maximal buy-in from all sectors of society, that kind of democracy, is the highest good has become very widespread among the left, even people who don't necessarily may not associate themselves with 
outright communism or socialism, the fact that there is something top-down and therefore undemocratic about philanthropy really does appear to be gaining a little bit of purchase in a way that I that isn't necessarily something that we would have seen 10 years ago. Yes, although I don't know how many, you know, bullets people are really willing to bite there, right? Like when you see George Soros, who is not running for president and who is uh, putting a lot of money behind these like left-wing DA candidates— Every place. I don't actually see a lot of people on the left saying, oh, no, it's really bad that we have this like billionaire coming in and like doing it. And what we should really do is just let everybody's knee jerk pro police democratic instincts sort of rule the day. So it's like there's there's a rhetoric of democracy. Right. But like I would be interested in how much people really, truly mean that. Because, like, I would say that, like, democracy is very important, right? It's important that we have accountable political structures. Right. But also it is inevitable, right, that a democratically governed society is going to put the interests of its voting citizens way ahead of other people. Right. And that one of the nice things about philanthropy is that philanthropists have the opportunity to do things that accountable politicians wouldn't do, which is like care about tropical diseases or to care about inequities in the criminal justice system. And that like a lot of the most important things that have been done in society, I mean, again, I will plug Future Perfect because this is uh, their, their kinds of issues, but like animal welfare, development in the third world, right, like intense suffering in the criminal justice system, international mobility, right? Like these are things that like a purely democratic society I think would not actually do that well on, right? Probably people would deny that and say that, oh, no, like deep down, like in their hearts, all Americans want like open borders and prison abolition. But like that's not really true. You know what I mean? And, like, it has been a useful thing that some wealthy philanthropists have done to focus uh, attention on this. And I I do think, like, the most important point is that, like, most rich people are not doing that high-minded stuff. And, like, you should criticize them. But then there is the question of, like, the actual justice of the economic system that has led to the accumulation of these fortunes, which is not addressed that well by the wealth tax concept. Because that's entirely post hoc, right? But, like, there are reasonable questions to ask about, like, how is it that in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when we had more rapid economic growth, uh, we certainly had rich people back then, but we did not have fortunes on the scale of contemporary fortunes, which I think is because we had a more competitive economy, right? So it's like somebody invented televisions, but they did not achieve like Mark Zuckerberg's level of wealth by inventing, innovating in the entertainment space. But somehow innovating in Facebook making has made you much, much richer than than previous things. And, and that seems to me to be like a boring, but like substantial economic policy problem. So one thing I want to get into very quickly is I think the other thing that's happening here is We keep using the term wealth. There's some interesting polling on when individuals, like when Americans, think you have reached the point of being rich. Ah. And recent polling has shown that that is around $150,000. And I think that In income or in in, in assets? In income. Oh, nice. And so I think that for a lot of people, it's not so much that billionaires are rich. It is that billionaires have reached a level of unimaginable wealth. Like, I think that there's an idea of like, okay, rich people, it's like, 
an episode of My Super Sweet 16 and having a Lamborghini, whereas billionaires like Jeff Bezos are like, we should colonize the moon. Right. We should colonize the moon because literally I don't know what else to do with my money. Which is, you know, one, that is one of the more blinkered statements ever made, especially when you're Jeff Bezos and your employees are working like 18 hour shifts in warehouses and you you are centered in multiple cities with massive homelessness issues. And I think that that plays a part in it where it seems as if being rich is is one thing. Being rich is like something that I think many Americans are like, okay, that is something one, I understand. And two, I hypothetically believe that I can attain. There's been um, some more polling on how millennials apparently uh, still believe that there's an idea that like they could become, if not billionaires, but at some point rich in some senses. But the idea and whether or not that's true, who knows? Well, I mean, those of us who who were in the early job market during the Great Recession, like, we've done white papers on this. Like, right. anyone in that cohort should acquit ourselves of that delusion right quick. It seems that, you know, we are dealing with, when we're talking about billionaires, we are dealing with people who keep using the rhetoric of the American dream. Our colleague Emily Stewart did it terrific piece in interviewing Leon Cooperman, who told Politico's Ben White, you know, this is the fucking American dream that Elizabeth Warren is shitting on. But the American dream, one, it's kind of a thing that we made up. And what the American dream was supposed to mean has changed dramatically since it's kind of encapsulation in the early 20th century. But also, you know, the American dream is not about becoming a billionaire yourself. There is a separation between what individuals think that rich looks like or wealth looks like or even financially successful looks like. And then there's billionaires. I need to dust off my 11th grade term paper on The Great Gatsby and the American dream. And, exactly. and we can, we can like, understand this. We I beat think, on. I think that the this brings us back to Donald Trump because Donald Trump is, as McKay Coppins memorably said back when he was inadvertently goading Donald Trump to run for president, a poor person's idea of what a rich person looks like, right? Like, it's not, Donald Trump represents a particular kind of unification of the billionaire myth in the American dream in a way that is exactly what Steyer and Bloomberg are trying to recapture when they say, you know, when they imply that only a billionaire can beat a billionaire. But Donald Trump's cultural politics are exactly the opposite of those, right? It's the when you think about the kind of traditional American dream anyone can make it, it's grounded in a and nobody can tell you what to do sort of, you know, small L libertarianism that's associated with you can be president of the United States and like eat McDonald's and drink all of the Diet Coke you want because that's what, you know, because America is based on freedom, whereas the particular policies that Steyer and especially Bloomberg have gotten involved with are things where Everybody doing what they want may not lead to the population level best outcomes like nutrition and soda consumption or gun control or climate change. They're the sorts of things that are that are not ideally suited for philanthropy because they require government action, but that are also not ideally suited for democracy. Whereas the cultural persona of Donald Trump, the billionaire who is just like you, may actually be able to play into the idea that anybody can be a billionaire in maybe a more potent way. I also feel like in, in some ways Bloomberg has always suffered in the public image from the fact that it it seems so odd that he's so rich. It's, I think, like difficult to explain right. to people 
people why it is that having invented this like obscure Bloomberg machine, which nobody has ever like the vast majority of people have never seen one, probably have never even heard of. But you're like trying to describe it to them and you're like, it's like a little terminal and it has data on it. You're like, so it's a computer? (laughs) It's like, no, but it's a special computer. It's like, like, why does he... stock market. Right, like, why does he have $57 billion, right? Where it's like, Trump has a delightfully tangible, you know, like, kind of... (laughs) Uh, well, b- business enterprise. Of. Well, a very well-branded yeah. business enterprise. It, it's yes. right, but it, it is composed of like physical, you know, entities like right. buildings and golf courses and hotels and things that you right. can you can see and they like have customers or or they don't. And it, it's something like that. Um, you know, I think a lot of these like finance guys, I, I this was my thing. Like when Len Cooperman got in the news for whining about Elizabeth Warren, I was like DMing Emily. I was like, who is this guy? And she's like, well, he's a hedge fund guy and now he runs a family office. And it's like, in a way that Wall Street people underrate, a tough sell to any normal person when you have this vast fortune and it's not based on like a product. Or it's not based on like a story that you can tell. Like, ah, he made money doing X thing. Like he, like Bill Gates at least has kind of like, he is behind Microsoft. Like there's something that you can, there's a story you can tell. But with, I think, kind of the world of hedge funds, as I've learned through the 15 minutes of succession I watched, it <laughs> is far more confusing and involved and seems to involve being really mean to each other and also some math. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I would go that far. No, but, you know, it's interesting because I think it's a, it's a, it's a conflict of, of personas that, like, Wall Street rich, particularly people who are more uh, progressive in some of their, their social and cultural issues commitments, um, they one thing that they think is, like, good about themselves is that unlike the founders of Walmart or Amazon or something like that, they don't have all these like labor rights issues because they don't have a lot of employees or like big tangible businesses. So like, oh, I should be the good guy, right? But while in some ways like running Walmart opens you to a lot of criticisms, it's also like very easy to say like what like what did the Walton family do? Right. Like they started this store and they opened more stores and a lot of people wanted to shop at the stores. So they opened more and more and more. And like many people enjoy Amazon. Right. Like as a company, they get very high ratings. It's a successful business because people like their product. It also because it's big, it's like people can worry about the conditions in the factories and uh, not the factories, the warehouses, all, all this other stuff. But it's like you're actually present in people's lives in a way that Tom Steyer, or Michael Bloomberg are, are really not. You know, somebody play this episode for Michael Bloomberg and, you know, then then we can see if he decides to officially jump into the race. But uh, we should take a break and talk about an experiment in applying to college. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. 
That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So this week's white paper was published in the journal Criminology. Uh, It's called Criminal Records and College Admissions, a Modified Experimental Audit, and it's published by Robert Stewart and Chris Uggen out of the University of Minnesota, which is kind of one of the powerhouses of leading criminology experiments. It's useful to think of this as a version of the experiments in discrimination against people with criminal records in hiring that you've probably heard of if you've heard anything about the ban the box movement, right? There is a body of research that suggests that when employers ask in a job application, do you have a criminal record, that there is not only discrimination against equally qualified applicants with criminal records, but that that discrimination is particularly pronounced among black and especially black male applicants for jobs. And so the logic of ban the box was, okay, if you stop asking about that, that's going to take that excuse to discriminate against black men away. There is, of course, now that ban the box policies have begun to be implemented in the context of hiring, some suggestive evidence that what's really happening is that black men without criminal records get discriminated against when they can't be asked, do you have a criminal record because employers make discriminatory assumptions. But that model of, okay, what happens if we put people through a process and see what the effect of having a past criminal record is on their ability to have upward mobility hadn't really been applied to the college admissions context in the same way for the very easy reason that it's easy to fabricate a resume and it's not very easy to fabricate an entire college admission process. So what these authors did is they they recruited real people who were not plan- who were you know, not planning to apply to the colleges that were involved in the experiment. And they said they paired two of them uh, who had relatively similar academic records, but one with a slightly stronger academic record who had a felony on their criminal record with a slightly weaker academic applicant who did not have a felony on their record. And they had both of those students apply to 280 colleges. They had them apply to more colleges, but 280 colleges, they like went all the way through the admissions process. They checked the box indicating that they were white on 130 applications, and they checked the box indicating that they were black on 150. So you could compare black students without a felony record to black students with a felony record and white students without a felony record to white students with a felony record. And what the paper found is that there was a substantial difference in the admission rate between the student who indicated they didn't have a criminal record and the student who indicated they did. Both of those were fairly high. They deliberately didn't apply to the most selective colleges just because the people in their study didn't necessarily have scores that would have qualified them anyway. So you're talking about a you know approximately a 90% acceptance rate for the student without a felony versus a 75% acceptance rate for the student with a felony, which to those of us who are skewed by thinking about hyper-elite colleges sounds really, really high in both cases, but is a 2.5 time greater difference, you know, more likelihood of getting rejected if you have a felony record. The interesting thing here is that that combines colleges that did ask about criminal history with colleges that didn't. And when you break that out, when the college didn't ask about criminal history, the students with the felonies were actually more likely to get admitted because, again, they had been paired with students without felonies who had weaker records. So when they didn't ask, it was like a 95% acceptance rate for the students with felonies, 89% for the students without. But when schools did ask about criminal histories, the odds that a student with a felony would get accepted dropped to like 67%, whereas it was about 90% for the students without felonies. So there is substantial evidence here that in general, there is 
a willingness not to select students who may already have criminal records, but that that is extremely pronounced when you actually ask about criminal records during a point in the admissions process. And it's worth noting in the paper that 70 percent of colleges request criminal Mm -hmm. history information on their application forms. And I think it's important to point out that we've been, you know, we use the term like felony, which is, you know, this is obviously not misdemeanor offenses, but that still is not, I think one of the challenges here is that the response that you see sometimes from kind of the more pro-policing statist argument is that, you know, well, they've done, like, this is kind of the ongoing punishment for their crimes. But the point is that those crimes, once you have been punished for them, the punishment's not supposed to be ongoing. And the paper makes the point that, you know, if education is supposed to be a pathway out of poverty and out of more likelihood of engagement with the criminal justice system, then engagement with the criminal justice system cannot prevent you from entering into that pathway. And, you know, if institutions are discriminating against people with records, specifically African-Americans who are the disproportionate proportion of people, the 19 million Americans with felony level criminal records, if the point here is that you engage with the criminal justice system so you stop engaging with the criminal justice system, which is actually kind of the point. The uh, The idea here is that you, you commit a crime, you are punished for that crime, and then your punishment is supposed to be ideally over. And that's supposed to be it. And then you are supposed to be ideally able to, you know, quote unquote, turn your life around. You know, there's kind of a lot of libertarian groups and, and Coke Industries has been behind a lot of efforts to increase the availability of education to people who are either leaving kind of criminal justice facilities or or have had dealings with the criminal justice system. And it seems to me that this paper shows that when a simple way of doing that is to stop asking this question, especially when it is that question that is affecting how people are being admitted to colleges and universities, not other factors about them. Right. The the authors make the point that there has been research indicating that, like, in prison higher education programs do have a positive impact on recidivism rates, but that the population of people who are currently in prison is likely to be, they're likely to have more serious records and more other problems than the broader population of people who have had some level of criminal justice involvement. And so if in theory you are going to make someone less likely to commit another crime by educating them in prison, but someone who didn't have a full prison stint and has already kind of served their punishment is not able to get higher education, that's a very perverse incentive. Not that I disagree with any of this, but I I do think, you know, particularly as criminal justice reform moves forward in the most progressive jurisdictions, I do hope people keep in mind how sensitive the politics of all of this are to it actually being the case that these various reforms aimed at helping to, like, connect people with work and, and stuff like that actually are effective at reducing crime levels because it's so easy to imagine a story in which a college student is raped by somebody and it turns out that person had a record that the school didn't know, didn't ask about, somebody is killed, you know, and then there's like a freak out and everybody's like, why weren't you doing anything to protect the students here, right? Because like schools have an obligation to serve the majority of their clients, you know, well, right? I mean, that's how people are going to see it. Like the customers are going to want quality customer 
service, right? And that's going to mean responsibility for safety on campus along a number of dimensions. It's clearly better for society if people with criminal records are able to get higher education. It's clearly better for society if people with criminal records are able to get into employment. But it's like there's a real collective action question around that kind of thing. And it's like it's important to be sustainable that you are able to like show to people that that you take seriously the idea that like crime is bad and that you are trying to inc- improve public safety you know like i i think it's 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 risky to just sort of put this all on this sort of individual level and like well you know the the, the person shouldn't be punished anymore because it's not just about punishment from the perspective of current and prospective students at at different schools it's like people care a lot about peer effects in education along a wide variety of dimensions but like are the peers violent criminals is I think like one of the most defensible kind of concerns people can have about their environments in an educational uh, situation. I mean, I think that that's that's fair, but risk aversion can become its own logic even in the absence of any identifiable risk. And the authors of the study actually go through this, right? They say, first of all, even though there have been occasions where a company could open itself up to a negligent hiring lawsuit Mm -hmm. by hiring someone with a criminal record who then victimizes another employee, there have not been any such cases of negligent admission, you know, where you can get sued. So it's your so the legal liability in question hasn't actually materialized. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, the authors point out that there doesn't appear to be a significant correlation between having a criminal record before entering college and being a, a suspect in crimes when in college. And additionally, that because this is a voluntary, because in the college admissions context, the you know, kind of checking the box initially of do you have a criminal record is just student reported, that there isn't like a full background check of everyone who's applying to a college, that the people who might be likely to victimize other students while on campus may not answer that question honestly. There's a, a footnote where they actually point out that the University of North Carolina did a report in 2004 that found that of 532 campus crimes reported between 2001 and 2004 in which a student was named as a suspect, only 21 of those 532 had a criminal history, but only eight of those 21 had actually been honest about having a criminal history when they were asked on their application. So, yes, you know, I understand that there are a lot of kind of consumer concerns and liability concerns that college administrators might have, but this is a hammer nail problem, right? If asking about criminal history on college applications is the way you're solving that problem, it's not a particularly efficient way to solve it. Yeah. And it also seems as if one of the real challenges that I think folks on the left are going to face and, you know, folks are both sides of the aisle are going to face, is that the issue of criminal justice reform is going to have to involve a conversation about the fact that people do indeed commit crimes and that criminal justice reform is going to have to change both how we talk and think about those crimes going into the legal system, but how we talk about and think about those crimes going out of the legal system. Because it is not just going to be a conversation about millions of people who are unfairly locked up for marijuana possession. Occasionally, it will be people who committed crimes that we find anathema as a society, which is why we have thus criminalized those crimes. But again, this paper really shows that you know, the point, again, of criminal justice is that you are supposed to, after your engagement with that system, no longer commit those crimes and be able to 
escape the environment that perhaps led to you committing those crimes and have the same social mobility as other people so that you will not be tempted to commit those crimes again. And I think that, you know, it's been shown, and as this paper notes, that education has classically been viewed as that pathway in order to do so. And it's important to recognize that, like, yes, that will involve people who have committed crimes going to college and going to college with people who have not committed those crimes and going to college with people who have not committed crimes who are like your kids. But those people are also someone's kids or sisters or brothers or something like that. And I think it's important to note, like, this is impacting a lo- millions of Americans. And, you know, their ability to escape the criminal justice system is as important as anyone else's ability to, you know, not have to engage with it in the first place. All right. So, you know, the real American dream, as we all know, is not going to college or becoming a billionaire, but it's sharing the joy of excellent podcasts with your friends and families, loved ones. Uh, so please tell tell all the world about the weeds. Uh, hop into the Facebook group. Uh, join the, the conversation. Uh, thanks to Dara and Jane. Thanks to Malachi Brodus, the engineer here, and Jackson Bierfeld, uh, producer for this episode. And the weeds will return on Friday. 